your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by Alex Johnson, James Boyman, and Ryan Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, joined by Alex and Ryan, and we are here to do a January transfer window wrap, and what a window it has been for Everton Football Club. We, of course, today, Monday, get the announcement in the morning that Frank Lampard has officially signed his manager. Then later on, as the day progressed, we get a loan signing of Donny Vandebeek and a permanent signing of Deli Ali from Spurs. We will get into all of that and more, but before we do that, we do want to talk about the manager and do a deep dive into his past record tactics how he used the various players at his disposal, and of course, talk about who he's bringing with him in terms of staff, because I think that's been a really interesting conversation going on amongst the fan base, provide some information there. And then we'll look at the window, uh, basically needs of the team as assessed by us on the show versus what Frank might want and what sort of pitches he might have made to the board at Everton as he was being onboarded. Uh, How familiar is he with the club? He obviously faced Everton as a manager of Chelsea a few times, and who might be some of the targets we looked for against who we eventually signed. And at the end, we will grade the window as well as bringing in some listener comments from Twitter. We got some great ones. So without further ado, Alex, take it away. Introduce us to Frankie, our new manager. People are going to be so mad. I call him Frankie. (laughs) Go ahead. You may know him as a former Chelsea star in central midfield, which gives us hope because we have mentioned several times we really need help in that department. But nonetheless, so Frank Lampard is 43 years old currently. He's actually a son of a coach. Um, He was a product of West Ham United, and his dad actually played there. But most importantly, he's a children's book author. Um, You know, it's a from what I hear, actually, James tells me, and I think he can jump in here in in a second, but it's called Frankie's Magic Football, and there's a 20-book set that he was thinking about ordering. Yeah, so to be perfectly honest, I wrote it in the notes just to mention because it's interesting. But I I knew, I knew that if James saw those things up front, which I knew he would, he would probably go on a tangent and research that, like just be totally fascinated by it. And sure enough, he is. Well, look, I mean, not to dismiss, you know, managers. Some of them are, are, of course, quite prolific. But I'd say football players aren't typically who you'd consider you know, the intellectual type by and large, though there are exceptions to that. So I was like, what sort of book would Frank Lampard write targeted at what age group? And yeah, as Alex said, he wrote a 20 book series called Frankie's Magic Football, which seems to be very similar to uh, the Magic Treehouse series, if you ever read those, which I did growing up. Anyway, not to derail the episode, but I found it very amusing. I might pick up the box set and do some casual reading, but it is uh, geared towards first graders. So it seems like it'd be within his wheelhouse to, uh, scribe something of that nature and it got great reviews so who knows if you're interested you got young kids check it out but please alex continue uh talking about his actual football management career listen you need contingency plans okay but nonetheless (laughs) another fun fact he was also a former new york city football club star if you could call him that um a less fun fact ali and i went to see them play and frank lampard was not involved that day just like that terrible day at DC United and uh, Wayne Rooney. But nonetheless, um, you know, he's only been managing for a handful of years, specifically at Derby County and Chelsea, um, which is definitely a, a point of contention maybe for some. However, I think overall the fan base is feeling 
um, pretty good about the appointment. So now why don't we dive into, um, you know, take a deep dive into his uh, short managerial career, uh, starting with Darby. It is pretty interesting, Alex, because you've got kind of the underlying results and some numbers in here, but the context around it is pretty fascinating. So we thought it was worth kind of a, a bit of a deep dive. So I think he was a little surprised to get the call from Darby to take over. He was managing in the youth teams in Chelsea, but he took over in the 1819 season. Uh, the team he took over had finished sixth the year before, um, plus 22 goal differential at 75 points. Uh, underlying numbers had him at like ex- expected points had him at 10th. He got him back to sixth, uh, 74 points. They made the playoffs and made it all the way into the finals, I think, of the playoff promotion tournament, uh, but did not win. That doesn't sound all that impressive. Then you look at the ex- the expected points, and it was 18th, which is pretty shocking if you think about it. And that was with extra matches, including the playoffs, the way Scout lays out the numbers. So, um, you know, goals, uh, the XG on goals is really low, 18th. Um, you know, nothing really remarkable other than that. Goals against 7th. Uh, but I think the most important thing about it was this massive change in style of play. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for this. He basically took over a team that was counterattacking, defensive oriented and turned them into this high pressure possession based team. They were sixth in the league in possession, 54% moving up from, um, 46.7 and 18. So, I mean, that, that's, that in and of itself is a pretty big stylistic difference. Um, they kept the ball on the ground a lot. If you look at kind of the construction, there was a high passing rate. They they didn't have a lot of long passes. Um, and and I think the biggest, uh, in terms of numbers, probably the biggest um, one that makes a difference is they went from PPDA, which is a measure of pressure up the pitch. They went from 23rd to 3rd. Uh, went up in challenge intensity. A lot more duels, tackles, interceptions. Um, went up from 20th to 5th. So the point is that this is a pretty drastic difference in, in style of play. And I think that's something that if you look at kind of the managers that many of these players were were bought under, I think that's an attractive thing. Yeah, he obviously orchestrated, as you said, this, this massive transformation and managed to get on the ground results, even though the expected points being 18, like that's got to be close to some sort of historical overperformance in terms of expected points against actual table position. I mean, that's not insignificant. You might see, you know, deviations of five to ten, five to eight spots at most, but they really, really overperformed all while going through this completely transformational style of play, something that we may see him try to do at Everton. It is a little odd in the fact that they really didn't get the ball that much in the final third. It didn't create as much as you would think, considering I think the pressure was probably effective. But again, you know, he brought in a lot of new kids to play in here, too, through the loan. We'll get to that in a second. So let's talk about tactics and then talk about the players, because there was big turnover from the year before as well. Um, played a lot of 4-3-3, some 4-2-3-1, some 4-1-4-1. So Mason Mount was the big loan he in. Um, Tamori was one as well. But Mount really played as kind of this hybrid 10-8, the most attacking of the three midfielders in the 4-3-3. Um, often they played with kind of one sitting defensive mid Tom Huddlestone. And it was a guy who Frank actually played with at one point, I think, uh, Bradley Johnson was another one. Both those guys were older, you know, stronger, big, and they kind of were the backbone, a bit of the team. Um, and I think that tactic may work for us decently well. So, um, so we just kind of look at the good and the bad, um, 
the first things first, the style of play, I think that's good. We talked about it. More expansive, modern. Um, I think it matches our personnel better. Like you said, uh, it, look, he did really well with new players. So think about how different the personnel is. I mean, they went from one of the oldest teams in the league to one of the youngest. So they lost Vidra to Burnley, who was the player of the year, basically, in the league the, the year before. Um, they started off well, too. I mean, they won six out of the first eight matches. And this is with young players. So that's another really important thing. Works with youth. I think that's important for a manager going forward with Everton because we can't buy all these older ready-made guys. So think about how younger the team went in. I mean, they were the second oldest team the year before, like a guy like Jane Bogle that was already there, but you had loans to Mori. Harry Wilson came in who lit it up for him. Uh, Mason Mount. I mean, that is a lot of young talent though. I mean, that's more talent than you normally get in, in that league, but there is some underlying aspects of the performance that, that aren't good, right? I mean, so we talked about expected points in the underlying numbers, gave up more goals, they were more open. That There's bad to that too, right? Some of the results were concerning. Like I, I think about how we need to get results now against teams that aren't great. They had two losses to, to Millwall, for example. And that's a team Relatable. that in against them. Yeah, right. Um, I, I think it helped that they got smoked by Leeds early. It was a big wake-up call for them. Um, I think it's questionable how tactically astute he is. He set up the team differently, and and I think he focused a lot on on the players. The idea that he played youth, there's a flip side to that too. Is that really what we need right now? I mean, because this is kind of a quasi short term appointment. I think that serves us well going forward. Anyway, I I think that's fair, right? I mean, wouldn't you say that's there's some good and bad, but um, I, I think if you consider the the massive difference in style of play overall for a first year, not too bad. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's uh. I think it's pretty promising in terms of, you know, especially this specifically the way that he had to change the style of play because it sounds exactly like what Everton are aiming to do, right? Switch from a more like defensive, like sit in style of play. Oh yeah. Um counterattacking play very right, much. Right. And I and I think Evertonians want to see that or or the modern football fan wants to see that. Um, you know, I I like the idea of um, you know, the fact that he went intensively in into pressures especially in you know up uh, further forward onto the pitch again something i think that can play to our strengths we've talked about how alan is is you know pretty good in that role in general um i also i also feel like the formation you know the formations that he used at derby can be applicable to everton in some form or fashion with the personnel that we have and, and something else um to keep in mind just based on maybe how the performances looked um you know, I, I personally think that you also have to have time to implement a style. He had just switched the style of play, which means he may not have also had the ideal personnel or the personnel that he felt would be ideal to play that style of play. So, um, you know, all of those things to say on top of the fact that it was his first year or first, um, you know, major managerial uh, stint, I feel like it is probably a good sign. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think the fact that he was able to to uproot the style of play and replace it entirely and get no material drop-off in actual finish is an achievement, even though the underlying numbers obviously indicate otherwise. I think there's, I think the questions about his tactical acumen are, are fairly reasonable, and we'll get into some of that, I think, when he was tested at Chelsea with a bit of a more, more difficult task. Now, on the youth thing, in terms of the question Ryan posed, is that what we need? I don't think that's what we need right now. And if you view him as a six-month, 12-month appointment, maybe it's not that important. But you look at someone like Lewis Dobbin, who had had contract negotiations stall for a long time, or really any of the young players coming through the ranks who were probably quite put off by 
our former manager, who I'm going to try to avoid saying his name as often as I can. And now they see this young, progressive, charismatic guy at the helm of Everton and can probably picture themselves being given an opportunity, even if it's not in the next six months, but in the near future. And perhaps he'll he'll be willing to carve out pathways for them. And that does well for like building your youth academy and retaining your best talent. Yeah, I mean, and and that is a that is a good uh, a good you know question and point to be raised. I, I think it really just depends on what you consider now. Like, do you consider now is in the next six months before the next window, um, or do you consider now the next twelve months? Because you know, in my opinion, it could be argued right that um, you know at, at some point we're going to come to the summer window. We still have financial fair play issues to a certain extent. Like those have not gone away. And so, as you just mentioned, you know, Lewis Dahman signs a new contract. Do we have a couple of players that he actually genuinely feels like could get minutes off the bench, you know, during a Premier League season for Everton, whether that's, you know, in the cup or whatever, and that saves money or that saves money further in the future, then yeah, possibly. Because, you know, it, it may not be as simple as like, okay, Dobbin comes up into the first team and the next thing you know, he's a star. Like he's most likely going to take the approach of a lot of the other young players and he'll be around the first team making, you know, bench appearances for two, three years before we can really say that he might, you know, might be in contention to start. Uh, so, you know, it is like a, it is like a now versus a future thing, but it is also very much still like financial fear play is a problem and it has to be looked at seriously, in my opinion. I think the issue is that he needs to win in the next six weeks. Right. And I, and the re- and you're starting to look at some of the teams and the window, I think has been wrapped up at this point. Some of the teams below us improved. And so, you know, that's kind of it. You know, that's maybe the concern. But but you do make a good point. I mean, I'm hoping he looks at our personnel with a clean slate. It doesn't consider how other people viewed him. We'll get into his staff because that kind of plays into retaining Duncan Ferguson, which is mostly good but has some maybe negatives too. So let's move on to his time at Chelsea because I think he was a little surprised that he was going to get that call so quickly. Um, I think a lot of people were. Yeah, and that's not much time to really be ready. And Chelsea's big time, and they're not known for retaining managers either. Um, I, I think maybe they were on the transfer ban. They kind of didn't expect the season to be phenomenal, which is okay. So, so maybe that is a decent situation for him to be in. But still, Chelsea. I mean, you're still loaded. I, I yeah, mean, you know that is that that is in you know maybe that's a big thing that they felt that confident in giving him a you know, a punt at it, although they did have the transfer ban and maybe didn't have very high hopes. It is possible to say that things could have gone very south very quickly. Um, I mean, I think he was concerned about that. I think he was concerned about it, Alex. I mean, when he did that lovely interview with Gary Neville, uh, where he went through like kind of his whole managerial history, you know, they gave him assurances that, you know, the expectations are a little bit reasonable, but yeah, he was concerned about it for sure. Yeah. And I think for him, it's gotta be a bit bizarre to be such a young manager kind of forming your career, even though obviously he's an unbelievable player in his time, but to achieve and author and and author. author. (laughs) So true to achieve what amounts to your dream job in your second job as a manager is kind of unbelievable. And that seems to be, I guess, maybe more of a trend in recent times, but Chelsea definitely took a risk with him. um, And we'll talk about kind of how it played out for them, but uh, it obviously ended poorly and you feel like, well, kind of that bridge may be burned. They might come back in for him in the future. But anyway, let's talk about what he actually did do while in London. Yeah, the first year was really looking at as a whole, not too bad. I think he made some mistakes the second year and we'll contrast that with the person that replaced him. But so look, he took over team that finished third. 
They were plus 24 goal differential, 72 points. Um, and the expected goal differential was right in there as well, too. They won the Europa League. Runners in the Caribou Cup, the Gummy Beer Cup, very important. Um, but they did win a trophy under Sari, and, and it probably helped that Sari transition them from a different style of play, so that probably helped Frank a little bit. So they finished fourth. They had 66 points, tied with Manchester United, um, plus 15 goal differential. The expected goal differential was plus 28.6, third. Second in expected points, just nudging Liverpool, who won the league. So that's that's a good thing, I think. Um, expected goals is third, 69 or 66.6. And then they scored 69 goals, which is great. Goals against is concerning. They gave up 54 goals, which was 12th in the league. And I remember a lot of people pointing this out at the time. It's worth noting though, the expected goals against was fourth, 37.9. And there's a big reason for that. As much as we decried Jordan Pickford's performance that, that year. And, and, you know, one common stat used is expected goals against post shot expected goals. Uh, against versus actual goals against, you know, it's kind of a measure of you should have, you know, the average keeper would, you know, historically would live this up. Well, Kepa was the worst in the league. And I mean, by a mile, negative 9.6. I mean, that is a massive differential. It's one of the worst statistical performances a keepers had. I mean, Everton was negative 4.3 and we're all nuts about it. Um, yeah, Kepa and Angus Gunn were actually the only two worse than Pickford, but I mean, Kepa was another level. The style was very much the same. Uh, it looked the same pressing possession, a lot like sorry, honestly, maybe not quite the exact same, but close. Mostly 4-3-3, some 4-2-3-1. The personnel was really fascinating though. Um, this is one where he played Jorginho deeper this season more than he did the subsequent season. And that was a big change. Uh, Kovacic came in. A lot of people forget that they were in a transfer van that they signed him earlier. And, and so they had him locked in him and Conte. I mean, that's a pretty good midfield. William was really, I know, really good on right wing for him. I thought, uh, then Georgina dropped out sometimes. T- Tammy Abraham and, and Giroux were up top. Abraham played really well. He loved Kurt Zuma and shut out Rudiger, which was interesting. Uh, Aspiluqueta played a lot, usually played over Reese James. At right back, but I think it's worth noting that, that some young players kind of came up into the team. So he got Mount back from loan, who was ready to play at this level for sure. Um, so that was kind of an addition, but even though they're on the transfer ban, they have their loan army. Uh, Tamori, uh, obviously came back, although he, he didn't feature that much, but he did play him some Reese James, who was on loan at Wigan came back. So you're kind of mixing these guys in. I mean, there's a lot of talent here. I, I don't want to use this whole transfer ban as a crush. I mean, look. They lost Eden Hazard. He was their best player. He was a dominant player, similar to the situation in Derby. And they lost David Luiz, who was kind of a mess at the end. Um, so, I mean, it's one guy, and it's a big guy, but it's not like the team was decimated necessarily other than the one player. So I I, I don't want to deminimize that loss, but, you know, cry me a river with the personnel you have. It's but still look, Chelsea, chose, right? They still right, have an unbelievable but, squad. Right. And, and look, he did some things that I thought were weird. Um you know, he chose Zoom over Christensen and, and over Rudiger. That was a little strange. Um, the way he handled Christian Pulisic kind of, kind of annoys me, honestly, because he started him from day one, came right in. Then he benched him all through September and no one knows why. And then he came back. He absolutely carried him, got hurt. And then when he came back after the injury, he was absolutely on fire and he was playing kind of left wing in that four, three, three, or even in the four, two, three, one. And you just look at the numbers. I mean, he was a massive difference maker. I remember thinking at the time, like he is carrying Frank and saving his tail. Um, but look, if you look at that overall, I mean, it's mixed, but I, I think it's a decent record if you, all things considered. 
Yeah, it was good. I thought it was good. And in all, I mean, it's all, it's literally all in context, right? As you said, it was the Kepa year and that was absolutely awful. I mean, he has not really found his footing since then, right? Been a little better this year, which has been good for yeah. them. Yeah, no, true. Um, but, no, but no, yeah. but he was a disaster for two years straight. And, I mean, look, they bought a new keeper the next year for a reason, right? It, yeah. It's really hard to, it's really hard to understate like how, how bad Kepa was that year. But overall, I mean, I have to agree with you. Like the transfer ban, I mean, the only the only asterisk there is the fact that a lot of those guys were young, but a lot of them, you know, mega talented, obviously worked out to the good based on where they're at now. You know, some of them now are on loan um, present day and how they're performing on loan present day. Uh, so overall, I'd say, I mean, you know, nothing but positive uh, feedback for me in terms of his, his first stint at Chelsea in general. Right. Especially as his second year in management. Right, exactly. And I mean, he pretty much just kept the steadied the ship after the departure of Sari. They didn't improve dramatically, but they still finished the same position in the league or, or dropped one position, um, dropped six points, um, some off the goal differential. So, I mean, they regressed a little bit, but uh, still a solid performance for Chelsea. I mean, the expectations are obviously incredibly high, and we saw that obviously would continue. You'd expect them with the transfer ban now over moving into his second year that he would start to make some improvements and get better when in fact that was not the case. Yeah. It's mixed in this one too. There's Alex, you said it very well. Uh, The context is what is interesting. Yeah. No analyst is going to say the numbers tell the story. Like that's just, no one says that. That's why I hate that eye test argument garbage because you're not arguing with anyone. We know that, but the context is interesting. And I think the contest is especially interesting. Um, in the next year. And look, they made a massive investment in the squad. They finished, he got fired uh, when they were ninth, 29 points from 19 matches, um, fired in January 25th. Expected points had them in third by quite a bit. So there's some underlying performance that was okay. But look, they were fifth in goals at the time. Um, expected goals were, you know, they were fourth. Timo Werner was a problem. I mean, he finished the year with the worst Expected goal versus non-penalty goal differential in the Premier League, negative 5.9. And that, I mean, that's, Killer. how do you get Killer. over that? That's hard. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. And, and then you look at goals against. Goals against, 23. They were 11th. That's terrible, right? Underlying expected goals and, against. And you, and you know what's crazy about the Werner thing is? For how much money they paid for him, can Frank afford to drop him? Only after only right. after, only after after half of a season? Half of a season. Can you afford to drop Alex, him? Alex, I, I don't think know. Make, I think you make a really good point because I think some of his personnel decisions were were weighted because of the transfer window activity, yeah. and that probably wasn't the best move. So, so look, what really happened, and again, that expected goals against second in the league is, is great. So there's definitely some bad luck there, probably some better luck from other teams, comparatively speaking. But look, he had a bad run of form starting in December. You know, he's kind of unlucky in losses to Everton. I mean, you know, it was, it was closer, maybe should have been a draw. Wolves is unlucky. You know, they lost and won the goal differential. Then they killed West Ham, lost Arsenal. And that's when Frank said he knew he might have been in trouble. Kind of drew Villain. That was unlucky too, beat by City. And then they lost to Leicester and it was kind of over. But the bottom line is, I mean, that's a tough schedule. Um, they were top of their Champions League group and it was not an easy, you know, not an easy group. Uh, and they weren't knocked out in the cups either. So some of the peripherals aren't that bad, but look, he stuck with a 4-3-3 and sometimes 4-2-3-1. Tiago Silva came in and, and played with Kurt Zuma. I don't think Tiago Silva maybe was perfectly suited to a back four. And I think Tuchel changing it, I think, has made him into the great player he was before and freed him up to be kind of that ball-playing guy. Um, 
you know, he rarely played Marcus Alonso. Again, with the wingback formation, he can actually play now. Locked out Rudiger. Didn't play Jorginho as often, too, uh, because he was playing Conte and Mount with Kovacic again. He played Havertz a lot. Then he got coronavirus. So, you know, I, I just... So I, I think the biggest difference is you saw someone like Thomas Tuchel, Thomas Tuchel come in and really make significant changes. Um, the three four three was a much better suit, and it, it just totally energized him. Um, Tuchel played Rudiger. He played Jorginho way more often, too, and he sat Abraham, sat Kai Havertz, mixed in Alonzo, and I think the performance was significantly better. And I think that context is important because you may look at the good and say the underlying performance was better than the results. He had some bad luck. Tough schedule. But then on the bad, you say, well, God, how did he not, how did he not figure that out? You know, he was not adaptable. He kind of stuck with the same things and he might have misjudged some players and they had a lot of talent and had a lot of incoming talent. So I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, that's a mixed bag. It seems a little harsh, but it is Chelsea. And you know, you know, you're eventually going to get fired as, as Carlo Ancelotti would always say. So are there things to be concerned about here? Do you guys think or, or is it just Chelsea? I think part of it is it's obviously Chelsea and the high pressure environment, but I do think there's something to be said for his insistence on playing certain guys. Um, I think that that could be, you know, maybe him rushing to judgment and then sticking with his guns. Look, I mean, he obviously loved Mason Mount, had a strong relationship with him, insisted on playing him consistently, even though maybe switching out bodies in the midfield would have done them a world of good. Although obviously Mount tremendous player. You're, it's almost an embarrassment of riches at Chelsea. And so it can be kind of hard to parse out your best 11 and this change in system would have made a dramatic difference. But as a guy, as a manager, I don't think you want to, I, th I think you, you can be adaptable, but at Chelsea, you also expect to have the weapons to be able to fit kind of any system that you want to play. And I think he probably was maybe just a little bit too stubborn to try something different and wanted to shoehorn guys into roles that maybe they weren't well suited for. Yeah, I definitely see it as like an insistence on on the specific style of play too. But then based on the timeline like we've set out, you know, his his uh first stint at Derby County and then obviously the uh first year at Chelsea, this would be the first time it seems like face value he's really been approached for the situation that okay, maybe my system is not working. And so if you look at it from that perspective and then pair that with what you both said, oh, it's Chelsea. And then you realize you're half of the season in Timo Werner can't score a goal to save his life. And you have no job. It's pretty harsh. It's pretty rough. Um, so, you know, he, he had that. I really liked the thing he did with Gary Neville and they were sitting down talking about it. And some of the things that he said was it was a big squad, you know, and he had to tell some guys that they weren't going to play. And he's like, you can't BS players. I really like that kind of idea. Um, he said it was tough to leave some guys out like Tamori, who, who really did a job for him at Derby and, and, Played some the prior year. He knew it would take time with Warner and Havertz, but do you have time at Chelsea? The best thing he said was when Gary asked him, did you have veto power? Were these guys that you brought in, were you okay with them? And he said, you know, I think if I wanted to say no, I, I think I would have had veto power. The point is that it was obvious he was operating under a director of football construct, and he, and he was comfortable with that. And he was solicited to an extent, but you, you, it's a modern setup there, no question. Um, but he kind of sensed that after the Arsenal match, he was he was in trouble. Um, so so all right, let's take a step back. We had a pretty good conversation in spaces, kind of about you know this and conclusions and and whether we liked him or not. And and um, the one I loved when we talked about his staff, we'll get to that in a second, was really interesting, and I appreciated that dialogue. So let's kind of look at what we just said and and talk about it. So 
what we think's good, bad, what concerns we have. So style of play, what do we think? A welcome change from the terrible football that we've had to watch the last six months, I think, in my opinion. I think most fans would vote for it, yep. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think it suits a lot of the personnel. There's still some gaps there, too, obviously, and, sure. and we'll talk about that in the window. Uh, tactics. I think the tactics make sense, but I think that's fair to question, you know, is he that much of a tactician? And I do think we need a bit of that right now. So it's a little concern for me. Thoughts? Yeah, I think you want a guy like one of the best things about Carlo Ancelotti was how he was able to get the best out of the existing crop. And by no means is our squad as deep or as even talented at the top as Chelsea's, um, but it's obviously better than what he had at Derby. So is he going to be able to figure out how well does he know the squad and is he going to be able to get the guys into positions to be successful because it, we've had some guys who either haven't been used at all or have been misused as we've talked about a lot on this show. Yeah, I mean, fair concern and also just fair to point out that's one of those things that takes experience. So that's what he's here at the Everton job to get. And hopefully it, you know, it bodes well for us and he gets experience quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's not a half halfway house though, you know, and that, that's, that's a little bit of a concern in, but, but that is the risk you take with a, a less experienced manager, but he's had big time experience, even though it hasn't been very long. And he admitted himself, he learned a lot. Yeah. I share some of your concerns with this application of tactics and personnel his man management seems pretty good like he seems like a guy that can relate to his players well i was pretty impressed with that and let's be honest when you hear him speak god he's so much more relaxed and and modest i think down to earth even though i think he grew up in a, in a pretty good situation uh, not remotely snobby though I, I think he is much more like carlo and i think much more how I would expect someone to represent Everton. I think he'll do that very well. Much, I mean, Rafa Benitez to me, like from day one, I mean, I knew how he was going to be and I just really didn't like it because I just didn't think it made sense with our values. Um, I think we agree that from a long term, he could be good in terms of developing youth players and giving them a chance. Some of that's circumstantial, but I think it's, it's, he recognizes how it's got to be, I think early in Everton based on interviews and, and I think he's a good one for it. I got some concerns in the short term, though, in terms of the tactics and personnel. And I think we talked about those, right? Um, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, what synopsis wise, I, I guess I'm comfortable with kind of what he's done so far. I still don't think the candidates were overwhelming to begin with. And I'm still irritated about the overall search. Um, I'm happy with how he's shown. and I'm glad the fans are really behind him. But I. You know, jury's still out here, and it's not going to matter until after the first game or two, right? Yeah, he's he's got to hit the ground running because he doesn't have the leeway that even someone like Rafa Benitez had, although he's, he started out well. And I think you're right, Ryan. I think as a PR exercise, hiring him makes all the sense in the world. He will represent the club well. He's charismatic. He'll speak to the media well. He's already got the classic, you know, happy Frank to serious Frank meme in his favor. That's going to definitely be a recurring thing. Um, and I think he just is going to be able to relate to the players in a way and, and be warm with them in a way that the previous manager wasn't. And I think after being frozen out for so long and having this cold calculating evil might be too strong a word, but I'm not above using it that we've had to deal with for the last several months. It's going to be a night and day change, I think, in the locker room. And hopefully that just gets a response from the players. And what's even more encouraging to me is the staff that he's bringing in to support him, which I know we're about to talk about. But Alex, any final thoughts on the overall hire of Franklin? Yeah, I mean, just just to build on what you said, you know, the other thing, too, is I think it's super important that Frank Lampard's going to walk into the changing room and be massively respected, ideally by everyone there. And, and I think that that is, you know, a big intangible that 
maybe the dressing room has been missing for a while. So not only, you know, hopefully will he be a good man manager, but ideally he will, you know, garnish the, you know, garner the respect that he, that we need the Everton manager, the buy-in from the players to, you know, implement the style necessary because I heard that they can apparently run better and further than their opponents in every match. Um, But we're going to need someone to elicit that from them. And I think that can be Frank Lampard. By the way, I've got an audience question, and we won't address it here. If Rafael Benitez was a children's book author, what would the name of the series be? And then we'll just move on. Um, anyway, just think about that one, because that, that's a fun one. Yeah, we'll put that on the Discord. Um, the staff, I think my favorite addition here is Paul Clement. I mean, that one's really surprising to me. And what I especially like about it is that Frank's not had to deal with the relegation <laughs> battle. Paul has, and, and did it successfully at Swan's. His background is unbelievable, really. I mean, he was Carlos' right-hand man for, you know, it's so many different places. Uh, Chelsea, Madrid, PSG, Bayern. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, tour of duty there. Yeah, he was just sacked last year by, by Cirque Le Bruges, one of the, the other Bruges team, basically. He's really struggled as a manager, but a sweet spot seems to be, um, as a, as the assistant manager. Um, he also speaks fluent Spanish too. I think that's interesting and that will be helpful possibly. Some of the other guys bringing into Joe Edwards, I think, uh, is a, is a nice guy who's been at Chelsea forever. So to bring him out of there, worked up from the academy, was really good as a youth coach. And Chris Jones, who, who joined Frank at Derby, he was the first team fitness coach at Chelsea for a long time. I, I think Carlos, the one that actually promoted him. Um, and, uh, Villa Boris is the, Boss is the one who made him the head fitness coach. That's a lot of experience on a staff that you're bringing over. And I think someone brought it up in the spaces. I thought it was a really good point. Um, that Tuchel kept some of the guys, but he's not really known as Mr. Warm and Fuzzy. So that's a big opportunity. And I think Frank is probably a little better liked, or they might be a little more comfortable with him. So that's a huge opportunity. And one I didn't really think of at first, you look at these guys and then knowing that, you know, our goalkeeper coach and then Duncan Ferguson are going to stay. It's pretty interesting. I want to hear you guys thoughts on, on that collectively as well as the Duncan aspect which I think is really interesting because there was a lot of scuttlebutt on whether he was going to stay it sounded like he wasn't at first and some people were very upset by that some people think it'd be better for him to leave so I'd love your take on it individually Alex why don't you kick us off with this one yeah I mean listen I think I think the backroom staff are probably one of the more exciting parts of the window especially with all the information we found out today um, along with the signings as well. Paul Clement, for example, as you mentioned, a ton of experience, which I'm really excited for. Um, you know, Joe Edwards, the academy guy, it, 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 it'd be impossible to argue that Chelsea does not have um, an efficient academy. Now they do have a lone army, but they had to come from somewhere. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, and then... No, their recruitment of players have been amazing. Everyone, every, if you're a really stud youth player and you can get in Chelsea Academy, you just feel like, I'm going to make right. it, almost no matter what. I mean, it's... It's the account. Yeah, and then and then of course you get excited because you see Reese James post a tribute message to Joe Edwards specifically, and you're like, oh man, I hope one of our players can be Reese James saying bye to him someday. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, and then you have Chris Jones who joined Frank at Derby and you know fitness team coach at Chelsea. So obviously they're they have relations, and God knows we need our you know fourth set of fitness coaches for uh, the year based on injuries alone. So. Duncan though. I want to hear your take on Duncan first. I was leaving, though, the, I was leaving the best for last. That's the lightning rod. I know. All right, listen. I personally feel that the thought that Duncan should leave this window is wrong. 
and it's asinine because no one was saying that until there were rumors that he might leave or that Frank Lampard may not retain him. Okay. Why all of a sudden does that rumor spark everyone to say, get out? I don't know. I agree. I agree that Duncan Ferguson needs first team managerial experience and it's going to be somewhere other than Everton. That's clear. And it should be somewhere other than Everton. This is not a fairy tale story. We see where we're at and why. Um, do I think it's a good thing that he's here for the remainder of the season? Yes. I think it's good for us. I think it's good for the players. And if Frank's okay with it, if he, if he's okay with it, it's all speculation, right? So if we're, if we're just going to assume he's okay with it, because the rumor is that he was, that he was asked, he was given the choice, then it can only be beneficial for us. Do I think that he could or should go in the summer and try to find a good, you know, with more options? Absolutely. Do I think Frank Lampard should have the opportunity to appoint someone else um, based on, you know, who he really would specifically like to work for? I also feel that way. What about you, James? Yeah, I'm largely with you, Alex. I think I think we're on the same page. I'm really encouraged by the backroom staff because when you when you have an experienced first team manager, he's going to need all of his staff to really lean on in order to be successful. They're going to need to do a lot of work in training. Um, Clement is a huge get. I'm really, really excited about that. I wish we could have got Anthony Barry off of Chelsea as well, but didn't seem like he was willing to force his way out. And so we're left. Um, would have liked his, his contributions on set-piece defending and set-piece attacking, throw-ins, etc. But the backroom stuff he's building is really impressive, and it's good to see him be able to compile his own group. In regards to Big Dunk, yeah, I guess it, it just depends on what his priorities are. Look, he loves the club. I'm not going to begrudge a guy for wanting to stay at a club he loves and work there in any capacity he possibly can. If his ultimate ambition is to manage Everton someday as the first team manager, he's going to have to try going somewhere else. But as someone said on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, said, There's, it's not a crime to like your job and want to stay in your job. He's making a comfortable wage. He's at the club he's been at for a really long time. He clearly wants to be here for at least the time being. So more power to him. And if good jobs become available in the summer, then I hope he goes. And I hope he comes back someday. But for the time being, as in a reduced capacity role, totally fine with Dunk being around. All right. I'm going to try not to say anything controversial here because I know people love the guy. And, and I'm not saying I don't either. But but I will say this just as a counter opinion. Sure. If I'm if I'm Frank, I, I probably want Duncan here because that's someone that can maintain continuity. He's going to give you information about the players and things like that. So I, I get that. I wouldn't want him running training. So I don't think that's going to happen because I think that's a different rhythm and, and the, the players need to feel and, and see and hear from someone regularly. That is different. Um, my only concern about that is, I mean, Frank's got to make his own decisions and it's got to be very clear to everyone that this is a blank slate. I'm going to judge you uniquely. Now, my fear is that Duncan carries with him certain opinions on players and that certain players that he does not particularly like or care for will be discouraged by him staying. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm also of the mind that a manager needs to pick his own staff and, and it would be, it's pretty unusual for them not to retain anyone. Uh, and we know, I think Duncan has done a lot of good things as a coach. So it's got to be up to Frank either way. Now, if this is imposed upon him, then yeah, that's a terrible idea. And I think that's absolute Agreed. garbage. I don't think that's the case. I think Duncan is probably a pretty good coach. He has a pretty good reputation. Um, but I do, I do think there is a negative to that, a slight negative. I don't know how true that is in that it may discourage certain players that I think could thrive in the system that weren't thriving before. 
And we'll get into that a little bit later. So I just want to give that other angle. But if I'm if I'm Frank, I, I, I probably want him to say. I just think it makes makes pun sense. Pun intended. You know? And Frank has said, "Pardon me." I said, "Pun intended." Frankie? Frank, what? you asked if you're Frank. I didn't. There you go. I'm, only you know. You laugh. I've been saying that so often, and now I'm totally cognizant of it. You know, we're going to run be, that into the ground. To be Frank, sure. oh, I know it's awful, uh, but I don't blame him for for keeping him. So, all right, we've just said a whole lot about Frank Lampard, right? That's great. So. We know what needs. I think we we have an idea what what the team needs. Um, so I, I think it's pretty obvious that we need a defensive mid, unless JP Bamine is the guy. Um, I'm not sure Alon can play in that deeper role. He can't in possession, but I'm concerned defending. Um, I think if I I don't see a Mason Mount on this team, I think the closest thing we have to that is Alex Awobi, and Awobi's not a ball striker and a score like him. So I, I don't. I don't think that's quite a fit, you know what I mean, in that role. Uh, if he's going to come in and play 4-3-3, I don't know who the most advanced midfielder is. Um, and then I, I think maybe a center half, but we, we already have four. Maybe I, I, another center forward, and we've got four center forwards on the team. I don't think that's it. But anyway, um, so let's take a step back and say, I mean, how, how well do you think Frank knows the team? I mean, he hasn't had that much time to assess him. I mean, the interview's probably gone for a week, but he has played against him a couple times, so... He's got to have some feeling on some of these players, you would think. Um, he faced Everton three times. Ironically, Everton beat him twice. I don't know if they were deserved. Um, so why don't we walk through the games just real quickly to see if anyone kind of stood out and kind of what happened? Because it's kind of what you would expect. You know, we packed it in in the games we won and managed to squeak out a result that maybe we didn't deserve. But maybe that's a weakness of, of Frank. I don't know. So the first match was uh, December 2019, and we won 3-1. XG was like 1.7 versus 0.9 with 29% possession. I just remember us being super aggressive and we were just tackling all over the place and acting like madmen because I think that was under Duncan Ferguson. So that's ball pretty, boy. There were ball right. boys hugged. Right. And that was a, a, a crazy thing. Um, but it was a strange kind of lineup. But, uh, you know, Sigerson was in there, which he's not here. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know how much he could have made from that team. Um Obviously, you got to see Dominic Calvert-Luna or Charleston score a bunch of goals against them, but those guys are no secret. Um, but I think it's very interesting that you guys were at the game in March, right, where uh, they beat the daylights out of us for nothing. And surely, if anyone needed convincing that Andre Gomes and Tom Davies can't play in a two, that was pretty much it, right? By the way, Awobi didn't play in that game, and I think that's a big reason why it was 4-0, by the way. That's what you that's get 100% why. That's what 100%. you get for not playing Alex Awobi. Yeah, and we, that was a disaster of a game. Disaster. We're... I think we conceded like almost immediately and it was just all downhill from there. The away fans were in the away end. They're so excited to be part of an away day. Well, what were your impressions of Frank though and the way they played? I mean, what did you take from that other than just. Well, they're missing like eight of their first team guys and they still played around us like we were, you know, traffic cones. It was crazy. Yeah, Gilmore worked us and Sadibe looked like a parody of a of a of a uh, professional football player that day specifically it was it was really bad and, and then we did record then we we went back to the the london flat and then we had to record a post match and it was so deflating because I was like, we waited for this. Alex did not want to record. It was at like all. we waited for really this. Have to do it. 
That's, I think I remember that. And yes, I remember it being fairly depressing from you guys. It was. It so, the, was so the funny thing is the third match we played, we won 1-0 with 29% possession again. And I think we may have won the XG battle in that one. I can't remember, but it was very low on both ends. I just remember this one bringing up Alex Iwobi because Iwobi was dribbling around like a maniac in this game. So, um, and, and that was the, um, I guess that's Alon, DeCorey, and Sigurdsson were kind of in the middle there, I think, Alon playing in the deepest position. So, that's interesting. I mean, that might be one where you look at and say, well, you know, maybe there's something there. But, you know, again, Gilfie, I think, scored. Um, yeah, I don't that know. Was the, uh, that was the back four of Godfrey, Keen, Mina, and Holgate as well. Yeah, so I, I don't know how much you really took from that. Um, but, but I think it's safe when you look at that and you look at the team. Like I said, I, I think if you say, where is Frank going to move first? I would imagine he might look and say, well, I've got Alon and DeCorey. They can kind of play defensive mid. I need that Mason Mount type player first. I mean, don't you guys think? I mean, like we said, Awobi's not the guy. Andre Gomes is not really that guy either. He's he's not good in the final third, as we know. Um, yeah, he can hold the ball and stuff, but I I just don't what do you guys think? I think that's where he would would I mean it turns out that is pretty much where he's targeting, but that's where I thought he would target first, and I think it's pretty obvious based on what his tactical requirements are. Don't you guys agree? Yeah. I mean, well, the other, the other problem too, was we talked about it with Rafa's style and his tactics, right? We just get it out wide and then we swing obnoxious amount of crosses into the box for someone like Dalbert, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Oh wait, light version, Solomon Rondon. Let's party. Um, overarching point is well, we, were we never saw attack mostly down the middle ever. We need a player that's going to link play. It's going to bring the ball through the lines. Ducore was doing a really good job of that in a different sort of role before, which doesn't seem to be happening much. So at the very least, it gives us that option, depending on the style of play he wants to use. And maybe we see a little bit of flexibility as well. And he's going to want guys who can carry the ball, which is something that Rafa's probably like relentlessly beat out of the team. Hold the ball, too, because Rafa did yeah. not want carries or anyone to dwell on it. He wanted to release the ball immediately, which is why Gray and Richarlison couldn't play that position at all. And if, and if he can see, if he's watched any of our games this season, I mean, he'll see what everyone else has seen, that a three-man midfield is going to be the way, and that's what he prefers anyway. So uh, he'll be looking for additional, even just warm bodies, to play in midfield because we don't really have them at the moment. Yes, this is the way. Um, Indeed. Yeah, so so look, so we took a step back and we tried to identify some guys that might make sense. So the first thing we looked at is players that played well against Chelsea. And it was a really interesting combination of people and, and none of them really make sense, but like, and Dombele was one, but he's off to Lyon. Uh, and, and I don't think that was realistic for us. Pablo Mari played a great game at center half at Arsenal. He just went on long loan to Udinese, but it, it's kind of like this cast of characters. Daniel Podence played a killer game against them, but you know, Adama Traore is leaving there. There's no way they're going to let him go. Like Mark Albright, not a chance. Uh, Mateus Pereira, he's at El Halal making a fortune. He's going nowhere. I love the idea of Juan Mata because he played with Frank, but he's not a good enough athlete to play that role. Uh, you've got to pressure and play defense. I mean, it got to the point where I was looking at like Gil Kakuda at Lens. I mean, because he played with Chelsea. I just I'm stretching here, obviously. He does know Begovic, though. That's something to mention because they were at Chelsea together briefly. Right. I thought, hey, sec- Fabregas, he's, he's at Monaco. He's just getting over his injury. So when you start stretching like that, you're like, this is not a good way to go and identify players. So Switched very quickly and went into players that aren't playing enough that could maybe fit that Mason Mount role. And there's some interesting names in here, I think. Um, did you like the fact that I thought uh, that I threw in Diego Lanez in there, the Mexican superstar that doesn't play at all for Viti? Um Ross Barkley. And 
right? Never. Yeah. yeah I, never yeah, let him back in the doors of Finch Farm. No, no, he's a, t- I mean, he's not, you he's know, not Frank the, talks he's not that role anymore. That's not his no, style of play. No, Frank talks a lot about energy. You know, he wants guys running around and being, you know what I mean? And spicing it up and creating and putting pressure on defenses. Ross doesn't do that. He sits there and dwells on the ball. Aaron Ramsey, I thought was another weird shout, which I think shows you his level. He's at Rangers, you know what I mean? Which is strange, by the way, Um, but too much of an injury risk. So two names that did come up in this search. Number one, Donnie Van de Beek. Um, I thought this one was pretty obvious. and. Sure enough, pictures already in there and an Everton jersey and everything. So, so gentlemen, are you excited about this signing? Before I break him on down and everything, um, certainly he's got a lot to prove. Yeah, I like bringing in players of this general profile, at least from this current situation. We had amazing success with the Damari Gray, is you know a player who's moved around, maybe hasn't made his mark. Obviously, a, a, not the same player at all, but the, the circumstances slightly similar. Donny Van de Beek made this huge move to Manchester United and has barely got a sniff of game time for them, but obviously did really well at Ajax. He's drawing the very, uh, I won't say lazy, but easy Davy class in comparison, even though I don't think they're really the same type of player, but players that came in from the same league and seem to have struggled. He's on a really high wage. He will be our joint highest player. If the numbers that we have from Spotrack are, are accurate, he'd be on 120K a week alongside Yuri Mina. But he immediately improves our midfield options. And um, I think if it was just Van de Beek, he clearly improves our ability to play with a three-man midfield, though we're still missing that true six because that's not his game. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I think it's a good signing in general, right? So just to just to clarify, if we haven't mentioned it before, but so it's it's just a six month loan deal. So it's just till the end of the season. Um, total cap hit would be like three and a half million pounds this year, which is not too crazy, but maybe somewhat a little expensive. Um, but again, as you mentioned, James, he's he's a, a type of midfield player that we do not have. And another interesting point, and something that I think is really important for the squad, kind of to go along with the whole like respect the manager, buy into what he's doing. He has a big point to prove, like a really big point to prove. And now he might actually feel a whole lot less pressure being in Everton as opposed to a place like United with players like Ronaldo, Pogba, et cetera. You know, Cavani, the list goes on kind of now. Fernandez, obviously. Um, to name him fourth is kind of funny, isn't it? But nonetheless, so I think I think that it could be a really good platform for him. I think that, you know, the amount of money, while it might be a little steep for a loan, could work out really well. Um, it's also interesting to note that he was, he was looked at over the summertime and, and the loan just did not move work out at that point. So we, you know, we were looking at him for a whole year at that point. Yeah. The loan fee is 500 K we think, uh, that's what we've seen. So yeah, it's a big hit. I mean, but he has a lot to prove. The only issue he's ever had is he just doesn't look like this super fluid athlete. You know, his yeah. balance is a little off. Sometimes he looks a little awkward cause he kind of runs with his arms out a little bit. He kind of sharp elbow type thing, but he's not as good a possession player as Mount. You know, he's not going to hold the ball and carry it over long distances. He can make a little move every now and then and escape from people. He's pretty tricky. Um, He's real good in the final third. The reason why the comparisons stick with Klassen is because they both have really good off the ball movement. They go into space really well. They're clever. They kind of find ways to score and create at least Klassen did at Ajax before he started playing deeper in a way that maybe others don't, you know, they have a good feel for the game, but 
I think Donnie Vanderbeek's very much an attacking player. Um, that being said, that being said, there's some talk about you know him playing deeper as like an eight. I don't think that's his game, but but I must say, uh, I did watch him play a little bit there for Manchester United, and he's a little more comfortable there than I thought. He's a really precise passer. His first touch is outstanding. Um, he's a big body. I mean, he's probably six feet tall. I mean, he looks big on the pitch. And let me tell you, that guy will provide energy. He will slide tackle all over. In hockey, we have a term about the concept of the back check. Um, tracking back, you know what I mean? Working hard. That guy will work his tail off. I think Goodison will love this guy. And I think it also kind of has that underdog appeal as well, too. You know, he, he's, he didn't get a chance at Manchester United. He'll come in and love the club. And, and so I, I'm excited about it. I think it's a good move too, uh, for the reasons that you guys said. Um, I think he'll be in that Mason Mount position. I think, um, at least he would have been if we didn't acquire anyone else. So let's change, change directions here very quickly. Another name that came out because he had under 700 minutes in the Premier League in a top league is none other than Dele Ali. And so I saw that name come out and I was like, hmm, nah, no chance. They're not going to sell him. He'd be cost prohibitive. And he just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, he's just such a enigma. I mean, he was so good and he just has kind of fallen apart as a player and I'm thinking, nah, I mean, and not to mention the big issue is since we signed El Ghazi to the loan, now we're restricted. We can only have one more loan within the Premier League. So I'm thinking there's no way we would ever buy him. So I, I kind of dismissed it a little bit, but little did but. I know that we were going to drop some cash in a very strange financial arrangement, by the way. And sure enough, it looks like Dele Ali is as of this moment an Everton toffee, a permanent Everton player. Yeah. This, um, this has been. The, you know, the conversation in the Everton fan base was like, let's get Ali in, let's get Barkley in, let's get Van de Beek in, let's get all these guys in. Obviously, because of the hilarious now, almost in hindsight, because if you don't laugh, you'll cry type of thing. The fact that we used our, one of our loans on Al Ghazi for a manager who didn't even want him in the Criminal. first place, but is now gone. Criminal. Wasted that loan. Ryan's conspiracy theories that it was used to drive down the Dean loan fee or transfer fee, rather. That really is the only logical thing that I can think of that would make sense as to why we brought in another winger. But that's water under the bridge. Let's talk about Deli Ali. So obviously Fabrizio broke the initial news that this was going on. And then we had we were he didn't break the transfer fee. So we had Matt Law at Matt underscore law underscore DT said Deli Ali moved to Everton from Tottenham, agreed, set to be an initial tr free transfer with Everton paying ten million pounds once he's played twenty games. Two and a half year deal. Now, this tweet came out. People were like, oh, my gosh, we've got a genius board. They're the best negotiators of all time. Well, and, and other people had been reporting it was going to be like 35, 40 million euros. Right. These crazy numbers, which you're thinking, oh, do not do that. ever. What are you thinking? Right. That's way too much. This guy's a big risk. Um, I think the initial reaction is that's a that's a pretty low fee. I mean, you got to remember he's making a hundred K a week. So I, I guess it's all relative, but yeah, that reaction was pretty positive. And then it was. things kind of changed a little. Yeah. Well, and, and it's also important to note too, right? So, you know, it's been mentioned before and people have definitely already done the math, but this year specifically, because we like to talk financial fair play this year specifically, he can't even play 20 matches for Everton because he's cup tied. So that means that the 10 million pounds would be next year specifically. Um, but 
further details we found out past um, you know 10 million after the first 20 uh, 20 games played he essentially could reach 35 to 40 million although that says um, euros there depending on Delhi and team performance incentives so at this point in time we don't know for sure what the incentives are how difficult they are I personally feel that if we're going to be speculative in nature I'd like to take the approach and say that Based on what we feel like Deli Alley could be worth, I would really hope that half of those half of those incentives would be extremely hard based on current position, based on what we know of our rebuilding to come as a team um, and the uncertainty over our new manager, right? Ideally, at least half of those would be very hard to attain. And, it, and, and if they are, that is reaching Europe, that is banging in goals, assists left and right. Yeah, I don't know, Ryan. What what do you think? I mean, I don't know a ton about the ins and outs of the types of incentives. I know, you know, oftentimes it's appearances, it's goals, it's kind of straightforward things like that. And then the team performances make a difference. There's really no way to know for sure. But you'd have to think that it's very um, tiered in a way where, like, it doesn't go from 10 million to 40 million. It's anywhere in between that based on a multifaceted kind of formula, I guess. Well, there's two schools of thought, I think, to this one. One is that people feel like, well, if he reaches them, you know, he will have been worth it because he made the team better, contributed to it, which, okay, I guess I get that line of thought. The other line of thinking to me is I'm thinking about the individuals negotiating this contract and the great business. I mean, incredibly sarcastically in terms of fees, not because of players, but because of the fees associated with the players this January. And I just have absolutely zero confidence whatsoever that someone like Bill Kenwright can negotiate a proper deal because he doesn't have the football acumen and doesn't understand like what the next alternatives are and things like that. And and so, so one of my concerns is, and we'll talk about the player a little bit, but you gotta, you gotta break down the math a little bit on this one. So, um, and I'm jumping the script here, gentlemen, I recognize that, but you know, Ethan Zander put this out. I, it, I mean, it paraphrased, it, he beat me to it. I was a little angry, but in my defense, I was doing something else. So his point on is let's assume he's still on a hundred K a week still, cause it's two and a half year deal. He's right. So, um, you know, 10 million over two and a half years is basically the equivalent in, at least in terms of financial fair play for the two and a half year period of buying someone for 30 million to a five year deal on 77 K a week. And he's right. It is. So, so part of the problem is I think most people look at that and they know Daly Ali is English and they know he was amazing several years ago and he really was. I mean, his numbers are outrageous and they think dare to be great situation. This isn't that much, but then you start down a back and you say, well, is it really not that much or not? It's the same when people got outraged at Bernard making 120 K a week when he was a free, not understanding that his financial fair play kit was not really much at all. It's also the equivalent of basically picking like you could hit two players for 12, 13 million each at 40K. So, so in essence, you could be buying two promising younger players instead of Ali and uh, Ali and having the same financial fair play hit. To me, that's, that's more of a frustration of where we are at in a club and why it's disappointing that as a club, you need to do well in the short term rather than the long term right now in January. So I, I just feel like there's so much opportunity we might be missing by doing this. But look, let's talk about the player. I mean, he was not too long ago, truly one of the best young players in the world. And I don't think that's exaggerating to say that his numbers in the past were phenomenal. And there's certain aspects of him that are very unique as a player. I mean, he's tall. He's like six two. His first touch is phenomenal. His timing is really good in attack at times. But I mean, 
and his whole progression was very rapid. So uh, it really makes of an interesting story, I think. Yeah, look, people probably are pretty familiar with the player at this point. If you've followed the Premier League or watched it, this kid was like the next big thing. But he was brought in under Murcio Pochettino in uh, the summer of 2014 for a little uh, over seven million pounds and then got loaned back to MK Dons for that season. Came back to Spurs in the uh, 15. 2015 and basically was undroppable for Spurs for like four seasons. Um, in 18, 19, he scored 18 Premier League goals, 17 of which were from open play second leading scorer for them behind Harry Kane, four more goals. than then Min Son scored that year um, and, and played the most matches in the Premier League of any Spurs player that season. Basically since Pochettino left, he's kind of been on a downward trajectory. Um, there was, of course, there's been a lot of questions about his work ethic, about his commitment, about his discipline. There was the infamous video, which was getting tweeted around today from the All or Nothing docu- documentary with Spurs when Jose Mourinho is talking to him straight up and says, you know, I don't want to be your dad. I don't want to be your uncle. I don't know what you do off the pitch, but I think if you, you know, don't value the time you have as a professional footballer, you're going to look back in a very short amount of time and regret. He said, one day, I think you'll regret if you don't reach what you can reach. And I think that is kind of the story of Deli Ali's career in recent years where, look, when he plays, he plays really well. His stats are unbelievable. He's averaged like over three shot created actions per 90 in his time in the Premier League, which is ridiculously high. Um, and he likes to pressure. He likes to get up when he's off the ball. His passing numbers are good. But he really is a guy who likes to get in the box and score. And that's where he found most of his success for Spurs. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's an exciting pickup. I know ha- I know people have, you know, some reservations based on specifically the last two seasons of where Deli Alley or how Deli Alley has been performing. Um, I think it's also fair to say, though, that someone like Frank Lampard could, in essence, do really well with players like Van de Beek and Deli Alley and how he uses them in a setup. Obviously, that's always dependent on the personnel around them as well, right? You know, it's not just how they are used, it is how they are able to be used based on their teammates as well, too. Um, I think, you know, if Deli Ali can even reach, you know, looking at some of his other stats, right, I think only one season beside the last two, he had like, I think his lowest was like five goals in the league. I mean, if we get a central midfielder that can score five goals in the league, that's already doing far better than we have recently. Um, But I think that he has all the tools to succeed to Everton if he can really, you know, buckle down and make it happen. That's the question. Is he just not did he did he reach the heights too early has he peaked i mean he really he was playing as like a 20 year old when he scored those 18 goals it's it's crazy now he's 24 it feels like ages later and things are kind of on the downturn does this to him represent a step in his career where he can revitalize it or does he just see it as he can continue this downward spiral ryan i know you're not convinced by uh some of the reports coming out I, i'm I just i'm just not sure that's all i i don't want to sure. say bad right away um god it's tough though i mean i started watching some of his recent matches and you just don't see him going after the ball um i maybe he was used incorrectly he's been playing deeper you know i think if you push him up the pitch and it's a little closer to goal i think that's where he's most effective but god i've seen him play so many matches where i just thought he was smart he had vision he's a good decision maker can really pass um and, and too often I watch Everton and I think I want us to be a more possession-based team. 
but I feel like we have so many players that are just frankly bad decision makers. And while he'll drive you crazy a little bit with sometimes that you think he's just kind of head in the clouds and he's not playing with the level of intensity that you'd like to see. Um, you don't make bad decisions with the ball typically, you know, um, he's pretty smart with it. I, I just don't know. I mean, I'd have to really, I, I think he's such an interesting story. I would really have to watch him more and really try and break it down to see if I really see anything. Cause I don't see anything individually about him in terms of individual skill or anything that looks any different. Um, but you know, you can't just write it off to utilization at this point where they're playing. Like, like, look, bottom line is though, if you play a guy in, in, in a wrong way, you can absolutely kill his production. There's no question. A lot of people think that well, you can play anywhere. And that I've heard that narrative and that's something that I guess you would say in maybe 1983 when positions almost didn't even matter and we didn't do tactics and things like that. But the bottom line is that's, that's not how football is anymore. Everyone's got video. Everyone's got heat, heat maps. Everyone's got every piece of information you possibly know about every one of these players from the stupidest little things, man. Advanced scouts watch players very specifically. If you can't go to your left, no one's going to let you go to your left. It's the Premier League, man. That's how it works anymore. Maybe some other people think that being a manager also involves critiquing every aspect of football operations. I don't. I think I, I, a manager needs to manage first team. You know what I'm hinting at here, obviously. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, we I picked can't, up on that. Ryan. I can't help it. We did. Uh, but it's ridiculous. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know, but, but you know what I mean, James? I can't look at it when I watch him. I don't see anything in particular other than maybe he doesn't seem as interested. That would indicate there's some inherent weakness. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, well, but I think I, I don't know. So I'm, I just haven't made up my mind about it yet, to be perfectly honest. I'm not sure. I don't know. So the ceiling, I think, I think we'd all be on the same page that in a best case scenario, this could be an incredible move and work out really, really well for Everton. But, I think the other side of that is you have to consider the opportunity cost. In selling in signing a player like Deli Ali, who do you pass up? Are you missing an you're look, we signed a guy, two guys, one on loan, one permanently, inter Premier League transfers, cast offs from clubs above us in the table. That well, seems to be a byproduct of the chairman. And, and the other question is can these guys play together? Because if they can't, yes. then why wouldn't you maybe pick a younger player with more potential that you could work in? In the same role. And, and that goes back to the math question before, you know, two guys for 12 to 13 million. So remember, we did the team assessment. We rattled off all these really interesting young attacking midfield players like like Yusuf Demir just had his loan canceled by Barca because they didn't want to pay the eight million because they've got other players coming in because they literally, I don't think, could have registered him. Are you kidding me? That guy could legitimately be one of the best players in the world. Um, a guy like... Um, Coach you at, at Feyenoord, we brought up. We loved him. He, he's a great possession player, too. Nick De La Cruz from River would be that. Love him. I mean, he's a little older. You know, he's like 24, but, like, he would be really cheap, maybe. Jameson Kempa is the guy that I absolutely adored at Gremio. Th those Michael Lise is a guy in the summer. Like, that's the type of guy. Mike Tresser at Genk is another name. Th those are the types of guys that maybe, maybe would that have been better. And that's what I'm struggling with. I'm not sure. And he's only 25, so he's not old, but I, I don't know. I You know, I could... Talk. I haven't talked myself into this either way, and I'm not going to do it on this pod um, because it's so new. But we'll see. It's going to be really interesting for sure. I don't know if they can play together. I'm only encouraged by the fact that I I was watching Van de Beek play with Man U in a cup match against West Ham earlier this year, and he was playing in the back in a four-two-three-one. Him and Nemata Matic were playing together, and that dude's like a you know not the swiftest. He looked pretty natural. Like he yeah. really did. Like you know and. He's a little reckless and would run and dive into tackles, but you get my point. So maybe he is thinking that I just, my, my issue then becomes 
well, fine, but you better have a darn good six behind them that can cover a ton of ground that can enable them to be that type of combination, both those guys together. Do we have that? Because I think that's one thing that you look at this window and you say, because we should talk about the overall rating in the window. That's the one thing I look at that I'm like, man, like, are you relying on Alon to play that or, or JPG or Decore? Like, how is this going to work? Because Ali did play a little on the left, too, in the past, but we've got like five or six left wings. Left wing. Right. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I'm, I'm interested. What do you guys think about this? And then the overall kind of take a step back. Let, let's take our rating in the window. What do we think? Yeah, I mean, I think we have all these listener comments, so I, I definitely want to get into these two. You know, I mean, so so if we're talking the upcoming match, right, you know, there's definitely a possibility that he could, you know, both of them could play in a three with Alon, especially because I say that because Ducore is out for like a month, right? I guess by that point in time, it might be two weeks, maybe three weeks. Yeah, the next league game they can play, right? Because they're both cup tied. Right. Yeah, exactly. Correct. Exactly. The next league match, right? Um, and as you said, right, you know, Gray, Richarlison, arguably their best best positions is on the left as well. So like you, you don't necessarily want to see Deli Ali coming off the left either. Um, and I think the interesting thing is, you know, JPG could probably sit. That's the only person that we've said, you know, even really seems like the type of profile that could do it. But I, I personally feel that he can't drop someone like Alon to sit JPG who has played, you know, three matches in whatever the last four man. I mean, I think he can with the ball. Like Alex, yeah. I think he can with the ball, right? In possession, we have no issue with a line playing deeper because he's, I mean, he receives the ball literally as well as anyone right. around and, and progresses the ball incredibly well. He won't carry it maybe as much, but he's still effective. But by that, Alex, positional, you mean, you, right, right. We're talking about defensively predominantly, right? Well, the defensive, it's just the discipline. Positional We'd discipline so is open. what a long like, struggle is. Right. So open, you know? And that's why I do kind of have the, the slight issue with signing both these guys because you you don't address the, the defensive midfield problem and really the defense, which is the main problem. You definitely bolster your attacking options, but I think we've done all right in terms of creation. I think our XG is basically tracking more or less what it was at last season, um, obviously with a very different style of play, and you just, you just don't address the six. So, Ryan, I know you're high on JPG because if he's, you know, even 70, 80% of what he was at Mainz, he can still be a yeah. useful player serviceable right yeah yeah i, I just but, i mean i don't know if this is an endorsement of that that would be kind of strange i know but this is the um i think this is kind of the last chance saloon for jpg because it'll be now what the fourth manager he's played under although the, only the second he's really been fit under and there had been talk about a loan out for him but it's kind of do or die for him so i hope that he's given at least a fair shake in an opportunity as you talked about earlier ryan the clean slate for all of these guys I hope that he can get that, and if, and then it, we know that it's just kind of merit based, and he just frankly is, you know, the injuries caught up with him, and he's just not really quite the same player that he was, and that's totally possible. I, we just don't know because we haven't seen no, it tested, I, and I want to see it in the cup match. I mean, because I, I'm not remotely concerned about us winning the FA Cup because it's not going to happen. We're nowhere <laughs> near that, so I just think this is a great opportunity for him to see a couple of these guys live. You know, um, and I think it's a big opportunity for guys. So it'll be very interesting who he plays, knowing who he has available, because there aren't many in the midfield. So without further ado, let's get into some of the listener comments, I think, because some of them are interesting, because a lot of them did focus on some of the other positions of need, maybe, that we didn't address. So um, the first one's interesting, because I saw this a little bit. I don't know if I really agree on it though yeah so christopher at smitty tweet said we need a center back we kind of mentioned that previously unless branthwaite takes a big step forward and lampard puts his trust in him 
I would say that, you know, the next six months we need in an absolute must-wins, Everton 16th place, I doubt that we're going to be relying on Branthwaite. However, it definitely can be argued, in my opinion, that we need a center back. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I don't now, think Branthwaite... Do we need one now? Mina. Branthwaite makes number five. Keen, Holgate. Yeah, I agree, Ryan. I don't think it's... It's definitely not the most pressing need. Um, I think people well, want to see some improve. Yeah, we got to do something with Mina too, right? Because this contract's right. not up in the summer, but there are a ton it's of center there. halves that are out of contract in the summer, though, by the way, which maybe a later pod will go through all of them. I mean, there are a ton of them. I... I don't. I just don't see this as. I mean, you got to be realistic. You can only do so many things in January, right? I think that's a little. I appreciate what what Chris is trying to say. I just think it's a little harsh. Yeah, and I think this is where people like the fan base coming in. They see Lampard is good with the youth. They're like, okay, well, Branthwaite is now going to get regular minutes. I think Lampard is going to have to be very pragmatic over the next couple months to usher us to a comfortably safe position before he can really start taking risks with young players. As much as I rate Branthwaite and hope think he's one for the future, he's probably not one to get us out of the mire at the this exact moment. We then had um, PDX Toffee at PDX Toffee. Gave the window a 7.5 out of 10 based on players, but downgraded to a 6.5 out of 10 for failure to address some of the needs. And this was a while ago so far, but I don't think we did enough to, you know, we brought in two players who seem in some ways a little redundant, though they're not the same kind of player. Uh, and didn't address some of the most obvious issues that we had identified at the start of the window. So um, what do you guys think think on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'd, I'll probably, and we'll get into that, our our personal ratings of the windows and why at the end of the listener comments. But I, I would say I'm, I'm probably pretty close to that. Um, you know, we also have- Well, there's rating the- Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, we also had- Saying there's rating the window and then there's rating today. You know what I mean? Those are kind of two different things, so- True. Yeah, yeah, also a good point. So then we also had Andy Cieja at Schmub gave the window a three out of ten. Said Patterson and Mikalinko, which is Savage. it is you know it is a it is hard to I mean easy to forget that they're part of this window, right? Patterson and Mikalinko will be good someday, but we overpaid. Sounds like Ryan Van de Beek is good business. Deli Ali can be good if given freedom from responsibility. Still too much money. Ryan's nodding his head. He approves of that message. But wasted loan on El Ghazi because of Kia Ganakia and got rid of international left back because Rafa Ganarafa. And I did reading that shed a tear for Lucas Dean and all Evertonians ever, everywhere. Made a lot of good points, Andy. And what I, do you guys think? Yeah, I, I feel a lot of the way he does. And I think that dysfunction is still present. I'm just concerned about making major footballing decisions in January without a proper longer term strategy in place. Like, what the heck are you doing? I mean, how did you even determine that these fullbacks were the right guys out of all the other fullbacks you could have bought? I think we overpaid for him too. Deli Alley is interesting. It's hard to make a judgment there if you don't really know all the financial details around it. I like the Van de Beek loan. You know, I think that's good business and we talked about why. And yeah, but it's hard to ignore like the El Ghazi thing's a joke. And that was absolutely a throw in because of Mendez is his agent through Kia. I still maintain it's to buy down the Dean price, but it looks good because it seems a little higher than it really is on the net. Um, and yeah, I mean, we let Luca Dean go and we didn't have to do that. We only did that because the manager alienated him. I mean, what the heck kind of business practice is that? So yeah, that should leave a sour taste in your mouth. And I think Frank Lampard has, has looked great and everything, but I, I can't like, I'm not one of those people that gets so wrapped up in the moment emotionally that I forget the whole process that happened. That was so flawed to get to this point. So I don't know if I'd say three, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's. I think it's a very dangerous window, and I think we're sitting at 16th for a reason. It concerns me. So I don't know if this is going to get us out of it, um, but we'll see. We'll see. 
We then had, that's well said, Ryan, by the way, Sticky Toffee-Lewin at Abel Southall, formerly known as Rafa Beneath Us, as well as several other monikers. You guys really got to keep it consistent because the listeners need to know who's uh, who's throwing out these comments. But we had uh, Sticky Toffee-Lewin said, all the right age profile, which is a start, regardless of the quality of each, regardless of the quality of each, all have a point to prove at this juncture in their careers. Can their talent be harnessed? That's the question. And that's, yeah, that's like, I made a joke earlier today. I said, you know, I uh, basically said, you know, Amazon should have done the documentary on Everton this season because you get the calamity of Rafa Benitez and the fallout. And then you get the little bit of like the last chance you element of like all these guys coming in who are looking to revitalize their careers and spice things up and really come in with a chip on their shoulder and a point to prove. And I don't think you can just write that off as nothing because I think it really matters. And I think it really um, is sort of aligned with the Everton typical underdog mentality that we've that has made us a success under someone like David Moyes in those years. Um, and I think you come in with a lot of players who are looking to out of self-interest in addition to maybe some like altruistic, I want to help the club out of self-interest want to play and play well and do extremely well. And I think that is going to be really key for, you know, just repeating the effect of like a Damari Gray. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said by taking advantage of opportunities that are presented to you right. in January. Now, I don't know if that's really what happened here. I still feel like we're kind of panicking, clutching at straws a little bit. And that's why it's hard to make a judgment with the Daily Ali thing until you understand the true financial impact. But that's a nice, interesting theme, and it could be true. And if that's what happens and Daily Ali suddenly snaps back into a motivated player, then then it could maybe be good. I think Vanderbeek for sure will be. So some of that's positive. Man, I just, you know, it's still one day versus the whole rest of the window. And 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 everyone's jazzed about Frank Lampard, and that's great. But I, I still have concerns about that, too. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I mean, we, you know, we, we made those points specifically about how they were going to do in there. You know, can can their quality be harnessed? And and then Kyle Clayton at K Clay Football, um, longtime listener, also said, you're missing the most important one in regards to us asking how you rate the window based on our player signings. And he said the most important one is Frank Lampard. The signings themselves aren't too exciting, but the managerial change should be influential. I think we all agree we're all really hopeful that he will be influential. And as we mentioned, too, in my opinion, I'm really excited about the backroom staff that he's brought with him. Um, and I think that as as a whole, the coaching staff could be you know, good for us um, come the future. Yeah, I like that Kyle uh, pointed out that I didn't mention Frank Lampard rather than pointing out that I didn't mention El Ghazi because I left him out in the tweet very purposefully. That was a calculated decision that I made. But yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, I think Andy was the one who kind of looked at it holistically because it is very different to just look at today where we bring in guys and ignore the fact that earlier on this window, we sold Luca Dean and brought in, you know, two guys who I think will be good, but are largely unproven. And so I think you look at the window holistically end to end January 1st to January 31st. And I've got to give it probably, I'm going to go a 5.5 just because I don't think you can really until Mikolenko proves himself to be, a consistent Premier League starter, which could be not six more than six months from now, for all we know. And Nathan Patterson eventually replaces Seamus Coleman as a regular starter. It's hard to argue that, you know, we didn't get significantly worse at the back. Um, and defense was kind of the main concern. And we also didn't add a six. So I can't give us super high marks. That said, I feel fantastic and optimistic about where Everton are headed purely because it's not nearly as bad as it was. And I think there's reasons to be optimistic for the future while also kind of 
hedging that with a little bit of realism like we try to provide on ATP. So what I know you got a number now. Is that what are you? Yeah, Ryan, we're going to, you're a numbers guy, right? This is like your least favorite type of number, the uh, unquantifiable, just throw one out there, but hit us well, with I, it. Four. Uh, the problem is with the fullback <laughs> buys is not because the players are bad or anything. It's just the deal that you got at the time showed that we were not well prepared. We didn't look at comps and we settled for prices out of a sense of panic, in my opinion. Uh, I thought it doesn't mean the players can be bad going forward. Hopefully they all pan out and everything's okay. I guess make a link overpay is much worse than I think the Patterson one, because he's got significantly higher ceiling the way we let Dean just go. I mean, <laughs> we're in 16th, we're in a relegation battle now and we've downgraded significantly a left back. I mean, how on earth does that make sense? Uh, I don't trust the guys that are making decisions for the club right now. I don't see any structure that indicate that they're making the right decisions. Um, Dilly Ali is a purchase rather than loan concerns me a little bit. I think there's risk involved, but again, I can't make a real assessment unless I know the finances. And so, yeah. And the El Ghazi thing is a complete sham. So I, I four. Yeah. All fair, all fair points. You know, I'm, I, I will go, I will be the optimistic American toffee on, on this, on Please. this year, ATP recording. And I'm going to go with a solid six and I'm going to give a six because, and I'm just going to take it a different approach from this. You know, I'm, I personally, you know, past all the BS of, you know, Rafa Benitez and all of the negative, you know, talk through fandom and, and all of the recording sections that we had. I'm just going to take it from a, a strict football approach, what I'm looking forward to on match day. And I feel like based on what I've seen in the acquisitions, there are a ton of question marks about the players that we've brought in, but the potential ceilings for all four of them, not El Ghazi, um, is very promising. We have a couple of players that definitely could make um, big you know, a big difference, but I kept it a six specifically because obviously, as Ryan mentioned, Lucas Dean outgoing for Mikalinko, he really, really has not hit the ground even briskly walking yet. Um, <laughs> that's definitely got to be a negative point for me. So a solid six over here at the Optimistic ATP. All right, folks, that is going to do it for this episode of the American Toffee Podcast. Went a little long on this one, but pretty comprehensive and thorough as we always try to provide you Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe on your platform of choice and leave us a rating or review. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find all of the links at linktr.ee slash usatoffeepod. That's linktr.ee slash usatoffeepod. We'll be with you guys maybe later this week with some additional window content and news. If not, then we will be certainly with you following the FA Cup tie against Brentford on Saturday. Until then, wish you all the best. End up the toffees. <laughs>